tremendous words, tremendous truths. And I invite you, if you can open in the Word of God tonight, to Luke 20, the 20th chapter of Luke. Just to say to you, I uh, made mention of, of Dr. Bill Woods on, on Wednesday. And uh, I came across, you maybe see it on the, the front of the sermon audio site or the app. You'll see the, some of the recommended sermons. You'll, you'll see one where uh, Dr. Woods gives really what is just an old-fashioned missionary appeal. I was listening to it on Wednesday, actually, after I, I left the prayer meeting here, sitting with Melanie, both of us listening to it together, and uh, just, it's quite something, you know, you, you really don't have many of these characters existing, you go a long way before you'll, you'll find them, and you can just see the heart of this man bursting with zeal to see young people commit their lives to Christ. Uh, to consecrate their lives to Christ, whatever that looks like, whether that means in some regular occupation or in missionary endeavor in some part of the world. So if you look on there, if you have some time where you can just sit and listen uh, to that appeal, uh, certainly if you've got some children, maybe it might be good for them to listen to the heart of them. You can see it's on video. It's from 19... 89, so it feels like a long time ago, but uh, it's the old Easter convention meetings in Northern Ireland back in the day, and it just it seemed that Dr. Woods was commissioned to just go after the young people with an old-fashioned missionary appeal, and he does a tremendous job. So I encourage you to, to listen to that and uh, be challenged in your own soul. So Luke 20 is where we are. And in our studies, we've come now to the last section of Luke 20. In some ways, it carries on into the next chapter, perhaps one of those times where you're a little conflicted about the chapter division and um, would perhaps place it differently, but it is what it is, and we'll just uh, give consideration to the text that is before us. We'll pick up at verse 41. Luke 20, verse 41, and read through to the end of the chapter. And he said unto them, How say they that Christ is David's son? And David himself saith in the book of Psalms, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David therefore calleth him Lord, how is he then? his son. Then in the audience of all the people he said unto his disciples, Beware of the scribes which desire to walk in long robes, and love greetings in the markets and the highest seats in the synagogues and the chief rooms at feasts, which devour widows' houses and for a show make long prayers. The same shall receive greater damnation. Amen. And the reading there at the close of the chapter, let's seek the Lord again, ask for His help and His blessing upon the consideration of His Word. Lord, we come to Thee so thankful for the Christ who was smitten and afflicted, who bore our sins upon His own body, who suffered in our place and our sins laid upon him. No one interposed, no one stepped in. There he stood, there he was nailed, there he suffered. And he suffered not for any sins of his own, but for our sins and all that we could comprehend the gravity of what ensued at Calvary, that we could enter into some 
greater understanding of what he bore, we might recognize just how much we are loved, how much he was willing to endure, that we, the guilty, might be set free. Should there be one here doubting and questioning the love of God, open their eyes. Should there be one in a condition of bold and stubborn unbelief, open their blinded eyes, break down their stubborn hearts and wills, let them see something tonight they have never seen before. Isn't the love of Jesus something wonderful? Wonderful it is to me. Give us help now, Lord. Shut us in. Give us thy presence. Advance thy cause in our midst through the preaching of thy word. Fill me with the promised Holy Ghost. We need thee. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There are a few forms of ministry that come under such scrutiny and questioning and doubt at times as open ministry within a hostile environment. Ministries such as you might engage in if you were downtown and you were giving yourself to open-air preaching, or if you were at an event and you gave yourself to open-air preaching. It is often something that is questioned, the benefit of it, the fruit from it. Go into a city, same environment, sing gospel hymns, get out your guitar and sing gospel truth. No one bats an eyelid. No one says a word, and if anything, everything that you will see is largely positive. Endeavor to give yourself to some mime portrayal of Calvary and the suffering of the Lord Jesus with a group of individuals saying nothing but acting out the scene. Again, you're unlikely to get much resistance. But stand and proclaim the gospel, and that resistance you will soon experience. People will question the methodology. They'll question whether it's worthwhile. Maybe this is a different era. We should try something else. But when such people question that, and of course we have to be wise as serpents, harmless as, as doves, I get it. But I wonder if you've ever actually read the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because right here as he stands in the temple, he is surrounded by hostility. The vast majority, I would say, is certainly a good significant number, and especially of those in authority, want him to be quiet, would wish him to be silent. He may be there, but don't say anything. And indeed, their preference would be he would not be there at all. And again, the question might be asked sometimes, well, what even is the fruit of the ministry of Christ at this time? Is anyone really listening? Is anyone being impacted by it? Is anyone being turn to understand or submit to the truth that he is giving to them. Well, our Lord Jesus has been engaged in a series of interactions with the religious leaders. They've come to him with various questions. I'll not go over old ground, but if you, you traverse back up through this chapter, you will see what I mean. And the Lord Jesus stands there, despite all this hostility and animosity and resistance, and even when he answers them, there's no humility in the response to the the answer that he gives, despite all of this, he continues. And the question might be asked, why? Jesus, why bother? Why bother? Stand in this place where no one really wants you. At least the, the ones in charge do not want you to be there. And the answer to that is the love of Jesus, what we sang. The love of Jesus is something wonderful. This is the one who looked upon the crowds and had compassion on the multitude. This is the one who just not that long ago, looked over the city of Jerusalem, knowing everything that's about to ensue, and he weeps over the city. This is the one, therefore, who will not be easily sidetracked simply because men portray or convey an idea that they, they don't want him there. He will remain steadfast in the work because he knows there is fruit to be born in it, even if there aren't that many. In the context in which we find ourselves, from, from Luke's account, we get no real indication of, of many really being influenced. We, we see in verse 39, certain of the scribes answering said, Master, thou hast well said. 
Uh, they're, they're, they're thankful because he's able to answer the Sadducees and give them a response that, that was, was able to silence them and their doubt about the resurrection, about the ongoing existence after this life. But there's no one really being impacted except when we go to the other gospel accounts. And if you were to go to Mark's gospel, chapter 12, you will find there in the account that Mark gives just before what we have here that one of the scribes actually responds to Jesus in such a way that Jesus' response then to him is found in these words, Mark 12, 34, thou art not far from the kingdom of God. It is for even one soul not far from the kingdom of God that Christ will stand and endure the hostility. I've been asked many times, you know, about open-air preaching. Why do you do it? Do you think there's much fruit? Does anyone respond? And so on and so forth. As if their way of measuring it is if the, the multitude or the majority would actually want you to be there and preach. But that's not why you're there. You're there even for the one. The one. The one that's not far from the kingdom of God. You're there for the one who despite perhaps the sense of resistance there is to what you're doing, they are being drawn. They are feeling their hearts become open to what you're saying. They're giving sober consideration to every word you utter. And they're beginning to think in a way they had never thought before about their soul, about eternity, about the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. In the closing verses of this chapter, I've titled the message, Jesus Shines a Light on Himself. Jesus Shines a Light on Himself. And that's not immediately obvious. But you'll see as we progress in the two main points that I want us to consider here, how the Lord Jesus shines a light. It's subtle. It's not it's not overt, but he does shine a light on himself as he closes in this constant barrage of questioning and interaction and hostility there in the temple. The first consideration we have here is he shines a light on the deity of the promised Messiah, or we might say the exalted position of the promised Messiah. This, this exalted position of the promised Messiah, he shines a light upon. So look with me, verse 41. After all these questions have come to him, Jesus then asks a question. How say they that Christ is David's son? How say they that Christ is David's son? As our Lord Jesus reaches out to this one scribe who is not far from the kingdom of God, he addresses them all. And it would appear to me, although I cannot be definitive about this, it would appear to me that as this scribe is not far from the kingdom of God, Christ is actually trying to nudge him further in the direction by addressing his peer group, by addressing those perhaps who would hold hostage the conscience of this man. He has lived his entire life seeking their approval, endeavoring to be found uh, honored and respected within their crowd, wanting to be their friend, wanting to be respected by them all. You can understand all that. They're all, they're all a, a clique. They're a group. They're, they're the scribes. And this one scribe who is not far from the kingdom of God, Jesus, instead of further addressing this one man, he then addresses the scribes. Mixed in with the Pharisees, if you pull in Matthew's account as well, you'll see that there is something of a mixed group there, scribes and Pharisees. But particularly upon those that are there, he asks them this question. These, these doctors of the law, these men of the word, how say they that Christ is David's son? How are they able to say that? He goes on then to give a quote. And boys and girls, you'll, you'll note when you read your Bible that you don't find Psalm 110 verse 1 or anything like that. Even previously, last week when we were dealing with Moses at the at the bush, it didn't say Exodus chapter 3, because those chapter divisions and verse divisions came much later. So the way back then, before all those divisions uh, existed, the way they could refer to it simply was by the book or the content, the content of that portion that they're referring to. So whenever you have the Lord Jesus, 
He says, verse 37, even Moses showed at the bush. That's it. He doesn't say it in Exodus 3. He says, Moses showed at the bush. And in this instance, he said, in the book of Psalms, and this psalm would have been well known, Psalm 110, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. This psalm has become somewhat familiar to us because it's come up repeatedly in Hebrews. So I don't need to go over all of it. But you have it come up here in the Lord, in the ministry of Christ, where he uses this to, to prick the minds and actually to expose the, the lack of comprehension these doctors of the law had concerning the Word of God. In order that, I believe, at least I'm, this is how I'm putting it to you, in order that this one scribe who's not far, not far, might be further pushed or encouraged to consider the Lord Jesus Christ as the true authority of the Scriptures. The position of the scribes tended to engender pride. They had authority. You, you see it when we go further. He actually addresses them directly in verse 46. Beware of the scribes which desire to walk in long robes and so on and so forth. They had a certain demeanor. There was a, there was a characteristic that was expected among them. And so it was, it was very common to find them have this certain air. It was no doubt seen as part of the dignity of their office. But it was conveyed in, a, in an attitude of pride and so on that we'll see further when we get to that portion. But here's one in their midst, one scribe who is not far, who is being humbled. And he senses that. And in order to help that man, as I've said, the Lord Jesus exposes the weakness of their understanding of the entire group by this question. So let us look at this a little further then. We have here a couple of things. First, the common belief. What was the common belief? When he asked this question, how say they that Christ is David's son? And David himself saith in the book of Psalms, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand. How did the Jews view the Messiah? What was the key distinguishing mark of the Messiah? Now, a number could be given, but the one dominant thought about Messiah is he must be descending from David. He has to be descending from the line of David. And so this comes up over and over and over again. He's going to be a king. He's going to rule. But that comes by reason of the fact that he is a son of David. And there was no doubt then that this would be a reality about the Messiah, that he would be a true, verifiable descendant of David. In fact, this actually argues for some of the authenticity of Jesus because if they could have proven that he did not descend from David, then immediately they would have made that argument and the entire structure of the authority of the Lord Jesus would have collapsed. If, if he couldn't prove, if it was impossible to prove that he descended from David, then there would be no argument. Immediately they would dismiss him. But in fact, the gospel accounts emphasize this over and over again. So you go back to Luke chapter 1, just to refresh your memory. If you go back there, you'll see how, how frequently Luke makes reference to the fact that the Messiah who has come, is descended from David. Luke 1, 27. So you have it recorded here, to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. This is important. This isn't just superfluous information. This is his vital truth. So he's of the house of David. Verse 32 of the same chapter. He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father, David. Verse 69, hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. And even into chapter 2, verse 4, again, it's emphasized, Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth unto Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. There you have this thought. It's hammering at home. If you haven't picked it up already, he is of the house and lineage of David. So this is the, 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 the common understanding. Messiah must come in the line of David, a descendant from David, and he is going to step into a role like unto David where he rules, occupies a throne as a descendant of David and brings deliverance and brings in a new political era for Israel. 
You have other times when Luke emphasizes this fact and the recognition that there was among the multitude concerning Christ in this position when, for example, blind Bartimaeus in Luke 18.38 cries saying, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. So you can't miss the connection. As you think of the promise of the coming of the Messiah, He is coming as a son of David. That is uniform. Everyone understands and accepts that. Now, when you come to the interaction we have before us tonight, in Matthew's account, in Matthew 22, there is more of an exchange recorded by Matthew in which a question is put and an answer is given. So, Matthew 22, 42, it says, saying, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They say unto him, The son of David. That's the right answer. That's the right answer. When we think of the Messiah, whose son is he? David's. He's the son of David. This is the widespread view. No one argued with this. No one debated this. This was so clear. Going back to Isaiah You remember when Isaiah prophesied of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. So he's going to come and occupy the throne of David. He's going to descend from David. And this was the view they all had. And Jesus, he draws them in with this question that they all agree with, that they all understand and know, but he pushes it further because this isn't as far as you need to go. You need to go further than that. Yes, yes, they can see him as a descendant from David, but all they saw, all they saw, and this this exists to this day, all they see in the Messiah is this authority figure, like David, only greater, who rules and brings in this new time of victory and freedom for Israel. But Scripture then, there's not only this common belief there is the scriptural teaching. Go back to Luke 20. You see what the Lord Jesus says here. How say they that Christ is David's son? So this is agreed. They understand this. David himself saith in the book of Psalms, The Lord said unto my Lord, Jehovah said unto Adonai, These are the name and title given to God, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. So he establishes the common ground. Now he pushes the conversation a little further by using Scripture. Again, this is, this, is tr- this is helping us to understand how to interact. Take people to the Scripture. Make your arguments from Scripture. If you're going to be dealing with skeptics, use Scripture. Don't worry about the fact that they don't believe that the Bible is God's authority. Don't even worry about that. It's just, it, that, that they question whether or not the Bible is God's Word. Just, just give them the Word. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. Never question. Never question the authority of Scripture and its power to break down even the most stubborn, unbelieving heart. I'm not going to, I was tempted to give some illustrations and anecdotes regarding evidence of that that I've seen in my own experience, but I'll refrain for now. So he turns to Psalm 110. Now, again, this is a little con convoluted, like you're reading this and it's not immediately obvious, which it wasn't to the scribes either. This is the point. But the Lord Jesus begins to expose exactly what the language is saying. He draws their attention to focus on this fact that David's son is the Messiah. Yet, this is what is recorded. The Lord, David's recording this, the Lord, God, Jehovah, said to my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. So what he is presenting before them is he is getting them to consider the nature of the Messiah more carefully. If the Messiah is only the son of David, if he is only the son of David, how can David say this? Because David records something that extends beyond merely that the Messiah is his descendant. David is acknowledging him as his Lord, as his sovereign. Now, this causes a problem in a number of ways. Because, number one, purely in terms of the fifth commandment and how we understand um, the ordering of, of, of our affairs within society, superiors, 
inferiors and equals. Well, let me illustrate it this way. In what context would David ever refer to Solomon as his Lord while David is still on the throne? David would never look at Solomon, his son, and call him Lord while he occupies the throne. That wouldn't happen. So you see what I'm trying to get that into your head because here you have a son of David, right? The Messiah is a son of David. Solomon was a son of David who would occupy the throne, but never while David's on the throne would he refer to Solomon as his Lord. It couldn't happen. So you have this problem. Why is David referring to a descendant of his and calling him Lord. Secondly, why is he referring to him as Lord in the present? Not that he will be my Lord, but he is my Lord. Currently, he is my Lord. So you bring this other additional problem where the descendant exists already in David's mind. The descendant already is currently, presently, in David's mind and heart, his Lord. Now, if you purely look at all the prophetic language and you see that the Messiah is purely a human descendant from the line of David, how can this be? It can't be. A human descendant, this Messiah is purely a human descendant, doesn't exist in David's day. Yet he is acting like he is. He is speaking as if he is. He's saying he is, he is my Lord. And there he is on the throne referring to him as his sovereign. Now, now, take, I hope I'm carrying you along here because I realize that there's some obscurity here or you may not be familiar and if you switch off, you won't get it. And you'll miss it. You'll miss the glory of what Christ is doing here as he sheds light Everywhere Jesus has gone, everywhere he has gone, there has been recognition of him as the Messiah. This has been to the frustration of the religious leaders. I mentioned blind Bartimaeus. He's not the only one. There are others who keep crying out, like he is the son of David. And they're, when they're saying that, they're not just simply referring to the fact that he's a physical descendant from David. They're recognizing him as messianic. Now you have a problem here. You have one that people believe is the Messiah standing in their presence. Now that's one thing because you have a man and we're expecting a man. But now he is shining a light on the true nature of the Messiah. The true nature of the Messiah goes beyond merely some physical human descendant from David. He is one who was existing in David's time. He therefore possesses, by some, this is the challenge, how does he possess life? How does he exist in David's day? And the only way this is resolved is through the recognition of the two distinct natures of the Messiah. That he's both God and man. That as David was there, by inspiration, by inspiration is being led to see this truth. He is recognizing that the Messiah who will descend from him in humanity exists before him in eternity. So the scribes are having to wrestle with all of this. <laughs> he, is, he is shining a light on something here that they had not contemplated, certainly they didn't agree with or submit to. And do you think the scribes immediately embraced it and said, wow, Jesus, we, we never saw that before. And yes, so I, I guess we're, we're looking for something more than just a physical descent. Someone physically descends from David. And perhaps this one would manifest other forms of miracles, like, like maybe he might raise the dead, like Jesus had just done with Lazarus. Maybe he might be able to still the winds with a word. Perhaps he might be able to give sight to the blind. And all of these other things that show that he has this power to do that which only the divine can do. No, that's not what happens. <laughs> they don't submit. Of course they don't. But there's one there who's not far from the kingdom of God. There's one. 
who is not far from the kingdom of God. And perhaps he is seeing it. Perhaps he is seeing the lack, which we'll see in just a moment, the lack of any real response to what Jesus presents. They can't come up with anything. They're left dumbfounded, unable to resolve the whole matter. And of course, Jesus, as you read it, and whether you look at Matthew or Mark or Luke, you'll find that there's no follow-up here. Jesus doesn't give an answer to the thing. He doesn't resolve it with a clear answer. When you read it, he quotes from Psalm 110, and then he asks the question, verse 44, David therefore calleth him Lord, how is he then his son? And he just leaves it, just leaves him hanging. If he calls him Lord, how is he his son? And what we've tried to put before you in showing these two aspects, these, these two problems, is, is something that they needed to resolve, but no doubt they, they were unable to do so. But Peter, Peter picks up on it. Basically what, two months later? About two months later, Peter picks up on this. Now he doesn't go into all the details, but he begins to expose the same truth. And standing before them on the day of Pentecost, what does they say in Acts 2.34? David is not ascended into the heavens. David isn't the one who ascended into the heaven. When we read those scriptures about him ascending and occupying a throne, David didn't do that. But he saith himself, the Lord said unto my Lord, I'm reading from Acts 2.34 and following, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, therefore, here Peter gives something of the conclusion. Peter gives the answer to the issue. Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made the same Jesus, Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. He's the one that David was referring to. He is the one that David looked to and believed in and rested upon. The scriptural teaching then that Jesus brings out here helps us see the, the crunch issue. In fact, if, if you go to, to Matthew's account, I just want to go there because there's, there's a question. I think I've read it already, but I'll just, it's just in my mind. I wasn't intending, but it's, it summarizes the whole thing much better than, than I am able to do here. When he asks, it's, it's Matthew twenty-two forty-two. When he asks this question, what think ye of Christ? I mean, that is the question, isn't it? Listen to me. Your answer to that question is the most important thing about you. If I ask you, what's the most important thing about you? The most important belief you have the most important characteristic you possess. What, what's the most important thing? I put it to you. Your answer to that question is the most important thing about you because you think of other questions and other scenarios that may be put to you in other areas. Do they impact your eternity? Do, do, they, do they get to the very core issue of what makes a difference between life and death, heaven and hell? What think you of Christ? That's the sum. What you think of Christ makes the difference. The Lord Jesus then in this interaction is getting to the heart of the true nature of who he is. Not in the most explicit way, but there's just this light that's being shed. There's just this, this light that is being placed upon himself by looking to Psalm 110 and making men and women ask the question, who really was, was David dealing with? What did David mean? And who can fulfill this role? Because if we leave it purely to some human authority, then we're missing what David was expecting. David expected one who was currently his Lord to be the Messiah. Therefore, they needed to lift their eyes higher. They needed to comprehend more fully who the Messiah would be, what characteristics he would possess. 
What we think of Jesus Christ is, is crucial. And John deals with this in 1 John. And in 1 John 2, 22, the Apostle John says, Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. He that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. If you're wrong on Christ, you're wrong on everything. You say you believe in God. I'm happy for you. But do you believe in Christ? This fits in with what we said this morning. It fits in with the fact that we have this need to, to come to God by Jesus Christ. And if we don't do that, if, if God, God is the aim, Christ is the answer. We're aiming for reconciliation with God, but Christ is the answer. He is the one who enables us to achieve that objective. Without Jesus Christ, we don't have it. Without Jesus Christ, we can't obtain it. So this is the issue, and we need to embrace this because here we are and living in our day and generation in which it has become, our, our communities are becoming far more pluralistic. We are being forced to accept more and more forms of religion and Christianity and beyond. The comparative religions and the cults and so on. We have politicians who are presented as Christian even though they, they what think they of Christ? Oh, he's a Christian. And then you look up, he's a Mormon. What think ye of Christ? I'm not going to get into Mormonism and their view of Jesus Christ and so on, but if you're wrong on this, you're lost. You are lost. This is where we have a need to not be affected or influenced by the, the bleeding power of the present cultural winds, where we feel this pressure within our places of employment, within the places where we're educated, within our society in general, to, to not be seen as being unkind, unloving, not generous. We're to elevate the virtue of sincerity, aren't we? We have to elevate the virtue of sincerity. They're sincere. You think the scribes weren't sincere? You think the Pharisees weren't sincere? And we have to be prepared to have people be upset with us on the crunch issues. Now, I'm not saying be contentious for contentious sake. But the Lord Jesus was not afraid to throw out bombs into his generation before the religious leaders. Bombs. He is not accepting every belief. The Sadducees can stand before them with their denial of the resurrection. He will expose it. And the scribes can stand there with their limited view of the Messiah and he will expose it. And we have the same duty. And never, I trust you will never be offended at me with, in love where I try to expose the falsehoods of our day. I am not, I, and I hope you've even understood this Already, I, I don't try to go after people every single sermon. That's, it's, it's not like elevate the truth by focusing on all the errors that are out there. It's been well said that in order to train people to perceive and discern counterfeit money, you make them examine the real, examine the true. Spend your time examining that $20 note. Feel it, smell it, touch it, examine it, see all the details. Memorize it. Know the real. And then when someone hands you one that's not the genuine article, immediately you will say something's off. Something is off. And that's what you're able to do when you focus on the true. When you give attention primarily to the true. But there are occasions. We must, we must expose explicit error. We must make it clear that some things are not within the realm of the Christian church. Certain views cannot be perceived as Christian. And if you're wrong in Christ, you're wrong. You're dead wrong. So, so you young people, you give yourself to study. And you love to study. 
And maybe, maybe you don't love to, but you have to, right? And you give yourself to study, and you're in that period of life where study is just part and parcel of your existence. And that's good. It's training for the future. It's important. How much study do you give to Jesus Christ? How much thought do you give to the person and work of Jesus Christ? Are you content with a, the most basic expression of it? Where you can assent to the Apostles' Creed and that's it. There is so much more. So much more. This passage here, when our Lord Jesus interacts with these, these scribes and Pharisees that stand before him, really what it does is he, he exposes the, the power and danger of assumptions. You come to the Scripture with your assumptions, and it's really hard to shake it, right? You can't help it. You, you, you read things through the lens of your own experience, through the lens of your own context, so, if you are brought up in dispensationalism, in premillennialism, or any of the other isms, amillennialism, postmillennialism, if you're brought up in any of them, when you come to Scripture, you, you see things through that lens. You interpret passages through that lens. And it's really hard to shake. Now, some people will have an epiphany, whether it's right or not, whether it's led by the Spirit or the flesh, uh, it depends. We'll find out someday, perhaps, where they shift, where what they were originally taught, they move away from, and they begin to hold to a different view. But it can be hard, really hard to shake it. So, so if you've been sat your entire life under a ministry that tends to take the Bible and then turn it into, read a text, make a few remarks on it, and then immediately launch into some area of self-help. So we're beginning a series on marriage, we're beginning a series on money and finance, we're beginning a series on relationships or of other distinctions or, or categories, or whatever it might be. We're beginning a series. And then they come and they have, they'll have their, their proof text, they'll have the verse where they begin, and then they launch into what essentially is their expression of a self-help book uh, littered with Christianese, right? It's not all wrong. Don't get me, don't, don't, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying it's all bad. It's not all bad. But what happens is if you sit under a diet of that continually, when you read your Bible, that's the way you will read it. You'll constantly read it with what's it saying about me in my life the emphasis of the Bible is about telling me how to, how to deal with the practical problems of my life. Now, the Bible has information with regard to that. So, there's a, there's, a, there's a reality there. But with that emphasis means that all you ever see, all you ever see is stuff that relates to yourself. Relates to you. Again, dispensationalism, I, I, I would say I, they're brothers of that, there's no doubt, there's brothers among them that the vast majority of them love the Lord just like within any other view of her or hermeneutic that is within the realm of acceptable orthodoxy. But there's a lens there. There's a lens. There's a lens. Uh, uh, this is my primary criticism of, of dispensationalism is that there's a lens that, that is Israel. God's primary aim and goal is Israel. Everything revolves around Israel. So, so that's, that's the lens, that they see everything. It's about this, this nation and this people of the physical seed of Abraham. But something happens when you get a different lens. When you get a different lens. What lens? The Christological lens. When you begin to see that the, the, the sum of it all is Jesus Christ. And so then you see the promise given to Abraham in Genesis 12 and the following ones that and thee, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Well, how so? Well, because of Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus Christ. He's the seed through which the families of the earth are blessed. Then you begin to ask the question, well, what about the land? And again, there's, there's, there's significance there in relation to Christ. 
Christ governs the nations. Christ takes possession of the earth. It belongs to him. You leave him out. You begin to miss. You begin to not comprehend exactly what's going on. And so then you get to, well, eventually we get to Luke 24, when Christ opens the scriptures. And through the Old Testament scriptures, what does he emphasize? The things concerning himself. Himself. You know what's wonderful about that? With all the other stuff, with all the other details, you don't have the same promise of the Spirit's help. The Spirit's work is to bear witness of Christ. You want to understand the Scriptures? The Holy Spirit is right there saying, I want to show you Jesus Christ. If you come with your lens, say, I want to see what it tells me about finances. I want to see what it says about this sub subject and that subject and about Israel and what's going to happen and, and, and how's the, the political thing going to transpire and who's Gog and who's Magog and all the rest. If that's the only lens you have, you might have wonderful little insights about what you think's happening in the world and how that ties into Scripture, but, but it might. <laughs> it could be totally wrong. But where you're never wrong is whenever you see the exalted position of Jesus Christ. And that is what those scribes could not see. They read Psalm 110 thousands of times. They couldn't see the true nature of the Messiah. But the one who sees that this is all pointing to Jesus. If you came to, if you arrive at Psalm 110 with the lens, where's Jesus? All of a sudden, the interpretation becomes much easier. The Lord says unto my Lord, sit down. Take the throne. Occupy that place of rule and reign. Where's Jesus there? Well, it becomes very clear. So this is just something to bear in mind. Be careful. Be careful who you listen to, spend time absorbing. There are lots of practical material out there. But if you absorb all lots of teaching that never actually, never spends any effort in showing you Christ, you begin to train your eyes. And then you miss the heart of the biblical message. So Jesus shines a light on himself. He shines a light on the exalted position of the promised Messiah. He's helping them to see they're to look for more. These, these few individuals scattered through the gospel accounts who could perceive something else in the Lord Jesus. They could see it, but the scribes could not. Then secondly, we just have these two main points. He shines a light on the carnality of false shepherds. The carnality of the false shepherds. Shepherds, look, verse 45. Then in the audience of all the people, he said unto his disciples, so he, he's very conscious of everyone who's there, but he looks toward his disciples. <sighs> Beware of the scribes which desire to walk in long robes and love greetings in the markets and the highest seats in the synagogues and the chief rooms at, the feast, at feasts, which devour widows' houses and for a show make long prayers. The same shall receive greater damnation. I have to believe that our Lord, while He is utilizing a common sight among the scribes, that His heart here is for His disciples, that they do not succumb to these characteristics. What are these characteristics? First, pride. Pride. They desire to walk in long robes. They love, they love the adornment of authority and recognition, the outward communication that you're an important person. As I say, they wore garments that signaled them out. People knew, there's a scribe. This long white robe, the fringes at the bottom, this, this, this communicated, there's a scribe. And they loved it. They, they imbibed it and embraced it. And they loved greetings in the markets where people acknowledged them as, as rabbi, as master. They used these titles and they, they embraced it. 
They, they, they cultivated it. They, they, they desired it. They almost forced the people to succumb to this kind of language. I remember hearing about a minister and he was known to a family. He was familiar to this particular family. And they knew, obviously, they were just, they, were, they knew one another. They were obviously on first name basis. After his ordination, at some point, so I'm told, he came into this same household where was one of the children who was about the same age as him and called him by his first name. Hey. Whatever his name was, not give any indication. Called him by his first name. And they corrected them. It's reverent so-and-so. That's what the Lord Jesus is addressing here. He's addressing that kind of... It's, it's, now, if someone else came in and said, you should respect, call him such and such, whatever, that's a different thing. But it emanates from this heart of pride. Again, people have asked me at times, you know, what, what, what can I call you? <laughs> You know, what should I call you? What do you prefer? And I was like, listen, as long as I know you're addressing me, that, that's really all I, I'm worried about because then I know I'm not going to ignore you. So you call me by my first name, you call me pastor, you call me Reverend Tomasi, whatever. I, I, I really, honestly, does not bother me at all. And I, there's a place for, for the, the dignity of the office. Don't get me wrong. There is a place for it. You know, you go and you, you go to school and there's, there's Dr. So-and-so before you. You should call him that. Should call her that. I was again. I've met men that I knew on first name basis, and then they were ordained. And I actually, my first interaction with them, maybe some months or sometimes years after them, I've said to them, "Well, hello, Reverend So and So, whatever." And they're like, "What? You know, my name is Paul. You know what are you doing?" And that's fine. But I, you know, there, there's a, there's the, the posture of both hearts. The posture of both hearts. There's the posture of the one who says, I'm not going to give any recognition, which shows a pride in their own heart. They, want, they, have, they have a socialism and a quality kind of mindset where they want to flatten all of society. But society is not flat. God's created a hierarchy. He has, and we're to recognize it, and we're to respect it. But the problem is when the person himself thrives on purely the title. And the recognition that may come with it. And that's what happened with the scribes. They love these greetings. This pride is just pouring out of them. The highest seats in the synagogues. Jesus warned about this. Sit in the lower seat. Someone says, come up hither. Go ahead. But don't, don't push yourself to the front. Don't be trying to court the... You see, you see this. You see, <laughs> you see this today in our selfie-driven social media age where... Young men in, or aspiring for ministry or maybe just in the ministry, they love it. They love going and touching the hem of the garment of the great known preachers and getting photographs with them and then putting it out so everyone knows you, you, you were with them and you talked with them. and you, it's like Trying to elevate their own status by using the status of these other more well-known authors and preachers. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. But this is what they were like. And the chief rooms at the feasts are always looking for priority. I say this, he's shining a light here on the carnality of the false shepherds. But what he's also doing is he is showing contrast concerning himself. Isn't he? There's never man speak like this man. Not once does he aspire to be in the position of authority, to, to demand certain recognition, to, to have this aura about him that, that men would, would, in a false mechanical way, give him respect. Because if they really understood who was before them, words could not sufficiently convey the honor due to his name. And you have a little insight of it, don't you, with Peter. When he, he sees it, when he sees it, because he had gone out fishing and toiled all the night and caught nothing. And he comes in the morning and the Lord Jesus tells him, go, launch out again into the deep, let down your nets. And 
He says, Master, we have toiled all the night, we've caught nothing. Nevertheless, thy word, we'll let down our nets. Off they go. Their nets almost break, such as the, the, the quantity of fish that they gather. And Peter, Peter comes and he falls before him. Depart from me. Hey, I am not worthy to be in your presence. He saw something of the glory of the Son of God in his midst. But Jesus didn't court it. He didn't tell him, you'll bow down before me. Oh, you, we don't have time. You go, you see the scribes here, and then you go and read Philippians 2 and what it says about the Son of God made flesh. It's condescension. The contrast. Their greed as well which devour widows' houses. Devour widows' houses. There are different ideas as to how this was done. But whatever the case, they took advantage of the vulnerable, possibly by being scribes. They had, they had a legal authority, and so they're, they're, they're being sought for legal counsel. And in that legal counsel, they're being taken advantage of. And of course... You think of a widow, what's in any legal matter that she has, she has lived through, she, probably all of those issues have been dealt with her husband. He has managed it all, managed the affairs, managed the estate, managed all of it. He's managed it all, and all of a sudden she doesn't know where to turn, and she goes to this, this, this scribe. He'll know, he'll guide me. And she's vulnerable. And they take advantage of her. And that's what Jesus is exposing here. They had no business doing this. These people who had been so dependent on their husbands, now vulnerable to simpering religious leaders who knew how to pull out of them and extract that for their own gain. And their hypocrisy also. For a show, make long prayers. For a show, make long prayers. Let the people see how long I can pray, how eloquent is my language. It's not from the heart, it's all a show. So he shines a light on all this carnality. So contrasted to himself who, though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor. That we through his poverty might be rich. The one who had nowhere to lay his head, even though the foxes have their holes and the birds of the air have their nests. And I read over this, beloved, I'll tell you, I read over this and I said to myself, dear God, please spare me. In the audience of all the people, he said unto his disciples, warning them that those in positions of ministry will be subject to greater damnation if they conduct their affairs in this pretentious, false, insincere way. I say to you, beloved, do not be hesitant to pray against the pitfalls of pride and greed and hypocrisy in me. I will not be offended. There's such wickedness. And it is a problem, you know. It is, it is. You see those words, the same shall receive greater damnation. There are only two things that keep the honest man in the ministry from abandoning his office when he reads words like this. Two things. His call. He knows he's been called and he must obey despite what he feels. And second, Calvary. He knows that's the answer for his shortcomings. And he must be pardoned daily and helped and empowered so that he does not become full of pride. That he does not become greedy. And he does not become hypocritical. Calvary. How can one be full of pride when... He lays himself low in the shadow of the cross. Gazes upon 
Son of God made flesh, broken in body for you. How can you be greedy when he gave up everything to the very shedding of his blood to rescue perishing souls? How can you be hypocritical when you're seeing such an open display of purity and honesty and genuine service to the world in Jesus Christ? It's at the cross where all of us are kept back from these sins. This beloved, though it be particular to ministers and those in office, it doesn't stop there. It can bleed into any one of our hearts. We become full of pride because we have better theology. We become greedy because we're Americans and we, we have a right to material gain. We become hypocritical because we lose, we lose a sense of the wonder. We lose the wonder that God became flesh and died. The Lord help us. Let's bow together in prayer. What think you of Christ? That's the question I want you to take with you leaving here tonight. What do I think of Christ? Is he the Son of God? Did he live without sin in this world? Did he die a sacrificial death on the cross? Did he rise again from the dead? Does he occupy a throne? Will he return again in power and glory? And have you submitted to his rule and reign without reservations? If you have any spiritual needs, any questions, I'd be happy to open the word of God with you, pray with you. But make sure you can, make sure you know who Christ is and you've trusted him, sought him for the forgiveness of your sins, rested in his finished work alone for your salvation. Lord, bless thy word. Help us to think rightly about thy son. In all the areas where we need correction, correct our thinking about him. And as our minds are elevated to think more soberly and more worshipfully of the Lord Jesus Christ, let our lives then follow. May we present our bodies a living sacrifice. May we give our hearts and consecrate our lives to the cause of our Master and Redeemer. Help those here who are holding back. Give delivering grace to those who are reluctant to give their entire lives to the cause of the Master. May they hear his call tonight to come up higher, to surrender all, take up the cross and follow him. So bless us with grace. Make us to live this week in light of a risen Redeemer. May we know the power that he possesses and live in that power and know the fullness of the Holy Ghost. May we be salt and light in this perishing world. May we see the victory of the cross through our own witness and testimony before men. May we be winners of souls, compassionate to the lost. Hear and answer our prayers. Forgive us and be near us. May the grace of our Lord Jesus the love of God our Father and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all the people of God, now and evermore. Amen.